You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia discuss the primary care issues that are on their mind and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and I'm here today with Dr. Billy Schwartz, a staff psychologist in the Department of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Schwartz. Thank you for having me. Today we're going to be talking about sleep, particularly teenagers and sleep. And we have the challenge today of talking about sleep without putting our listeners to sleep, so thank you for (laughs) taking that on. So in clinic, I have a lot of parents who complain to me that their teenagers do not get enough sleep. And these concerns usually stem from the fact that their insufficient sleep is affecting their mood, their academic performance, their family, and their social relationships. So my question for you, Dr. Schwartz, is how much sleep do teenagers need and how much do most teenagers actually get? Okay, so that's a great question. When we look at what teenagers report that they get, either through parent report or what they're reporting themselves, they usually report about seven hours of sleep. And that could be given lots of things, um, which we'll probably talk about in a little bit, but when we actually do studies to look at how much sleep teenagers do need, on average it's about nine to 9.25 hours of sleep a night. So a lot more than they're getting. Wow, that sounds, I mean, just knowing how much I sleep, nine hours sounds like a lot. Is that, do teenagers need more sleep than than young children or adults? Are they specific in that way? It's showing that they do. I mean, there's a lot of things that are happening with an adolescent body and brain, right? There are biological changes in their body. There's stress and demands, both personally and with school that they didn't have before. And all these take a toll on their bodies. So if put in a dark room without any of those demands that they would have normally, what researchers have found is that they will likely sleep on average nine hours. So there is something to say that they do need that amount of sleep. Hmm. And I know I've heard a lot of uh, parents and teenagers tell me when they're not getting enough sleep that they just catch up on the weekends and they take some naps or they sleep in really late. Is there a problem with doing catch-up sleep like that or doing naps to help get that deficit of what you're not getting overnight? So the issue with catch-up sleep, and although it might make you feel good, it's actually not doing your body any justice. So if you think about the average teenager's week, if they're already cutting their nightly average by two hours, if they're only getting maybe seven hours of sleep, and that's if they're actually getting seven hours of sleep and not Mm -hmm. less, then they're building up a deficit day by day. So then they reach the weekend and they are exhausted. So if they tend to sleep in or take a large nap, they might feel better and well rested because they're catching up on their sleep, but then Sunday night hits. Mm -hmm. And if you haven't been awake long enough on the weekends or you you slept too long, then by Sunday night, you're throwing off your biological circadian rhythm, where then you're already starting your week off in a deficit. So you get those sort of Sunday night blues where you're up and then you can't fall asleep and maybe you're up until two o'clock in the morning, waking up at six to go to school. So then you're already setting off the week both psychologically and biologically in a bad place. Mm. So that's more the problem with the catch up, not that you can't necessarily catch up and get some sleep. It's just you're you're setting your schedule into a hard place. What about taking a nap after school? Is that okay for for a teenager to do? Sure, it's okay for a teenager to do. It just depends on how long that nap is. 
um, we as humans need to be awake for a certain amount of time before we can go back to sleep again. That's called sleep pressure. And you need a certain amount of time for sleep for it to be awake for that to build before your body's ready to go to sleep. So if you get home at 3.30 and take maybe a 40-minute power nap and then get up and do the rest of the things you have to do, that should probably be okay. But like many teenagers, if they're coming home and taking a two-hour nap until dinner time, well, then they're just delaying all the things that they may have done in that two hours, like get their homework done, maybe do some physical activity, do the calming activities ready for bed. Now they have to do those after dinner, which then they're delaying their bedtime by at least another two hours. So that's the problem with the afternoon naps is that they tend to be a little bit longer because they need to catch up, but then they're delaying everything else. Right. Okay. I often encourage families when I'm talking to parents with infants that it's really important to set a consistent bedtime routine and to maintain this throughout childhood. Most teenagers, though, are putting themselves to bed. So how can parents help encourage a routine for their teenager? So first, you've got to get the buy-in. So you have to get the buy-in from the teenager that they want to get more sleep, of course, because as parents are being removed from the bedtime, we're hoping that they're taking more ownership in what they have to do to get more sleep. So if you have a teenager that just doesn't want to go to bed any earlier, I mean, I think what a parent can do is mostly limit their access to the things that could be distracting, like TV, phones, um, those kind of things that we know will keep them up later. Mm -hmm. If they're just in their room with nothing fun to entertain them, maybe they'd fall asleep faster. So that's probably the closest thing a parent can do Mm -hmm. um, other than working to establish a good bedtime routine. Right. So set up a good environment for them. Mm -hmm. So besides all the things that they shouldn't do, they were talking about removing screen time and video games, things like that. What are some other good uh, sleep hygiene practices that teenagers could do in place of those that would help promote sleep? So the first thing is to take some of as much of the stressful activity that they have to do after school and move it as early in the evening as possible. So not doing homework right up until bed or projects or things that require a lot of brain activity and a lot of thinking or might cause stress or anything like that to move it as early as possible. The next would be when we when we talk to any family about developing a bed for bedtime routine, we want two to four calming activities that are moving towards the direction of the bedroom, sort of in that straight line. So what we don't want is kids going upstairs, doing their homework, coming downstairs for a snack, then maybe going to the bathroom and then maybe going back down to watch some TV and then going to the room. So you want to set this pathway towards sleep, which would involve having you know, downstairs time, a snack if they need it, and then moving up and doing if they have a bathroom routine where it maybe involves a shower or washing their face or doing any sort of care routine to their bodies, and then being in their room without any screens and having some sort of quiet time, whether that's listening to music, um, reading a book, a really boring book, (laughs) um, maybe not something from school or a comic or something that's going to get them excited, but something that's really meant for them to calm down with the lights down low and setting the mood for sleep. Mm -hmm. Great. Those are good suggestions, things that I think we could all probably Mm -hmm. use too. Um, Sometimes I hear parents tell me that their child used to be a good sleeper and now all of a sudden they're having these new problems with sleep. So what are some reasons why someone who was a good sleeper might suddenly be having a disruption to their sleep that we should, as pediatricians, be looking out for as a potential warning sign of something? Mm Well, adolescence is hard, and it's this t- this chunk of time when we're growing up and we get more demands on us that we didn't have. So first, we have biological changes that didn't exist. We've got more hormones in our body. 
We've got things that are changing the way we think, the way we feel, we're more emotional, and those could certainly affect our ability to fall asleep and our ability to stay asleep. Um, so that's one thing to keep in mind is that biologically we have to overcome changes that we just didn't have when we were younger. Mm -hmm. The second is the demands with which um, our adolescents are faced with these days. So stressed environments with school, increased demands for homework, sports practices that happen in the evening that get us amped up and more excited to, to be awake than to fall asleep. Mm -hmm. And then this whole other aspect of social life that didn't exist when we were young. So not only keeping in touch with friends and planning their activities and thinking what goes on on the weekend, but also social media. So now having phones and screens and tablets and Facebook and all these other things that seem to really come alive at night for teenagers versus what's going on in the day. And that's something that certainly a child wouldn't have faced up until then. Mm -hmm. Parents often cite their teenagers' busy after-school schedule as the reason why they can't get to bed earlier. And teenagers often tell me that this is one of the pressures about why uh, the early bedtime that I suggest is impossible to them. So how do families balance the demands of after-school activities like homework and sports that you mentioned before and family time um, with a bedtime that's also appropriate for them to get that adequate nine hours of sleep that they need? This is a tough question because... Having after-school activities are good and healthy for kids. Um, having homework is a natural part of our school environment. So there are many things that sort of get taken out of control that you can, can't really control with a family routine when it gets to those busy years. Having everyone buy in that sleep is important is the first step because then you're not fighting an uphill battle. Mm -hmm. If everyone agrees, the goal is to get everything done and to do it by a reasonable time to go to bed. So having that strong bedtime routine is important and having an absolute bedtime when lights are out and if that's across the household so that adolescents are noticing that parents do it too can be mm -hmm. really helpful. Um, schools are, I mean, this is starting to become a bigger topic as well because now mm -hmm. schools are starting to recognize it that they may need to be pushing back their start dates so that kids can be getting just an hour more sleep in the morning is really helpful for their day. Mm -hmm. So um, if there's ways during the day to maximize breaks and times, whether it's using study hall to do homework, so then you're removing some of the homework out of the equation. Mm -hmm. And although it may not seem like the great choice during the day, that just alleviates some time and some pressure and some stress at night. Again, knowing that screens won't be a part and social media isn't going to be a part of the nighttime routine, that that's just not acceptable in the house, that can alleviate some time of, of playing around. So then when you finish your activities, it's really about getting some food in your stomach, washing up, however that's appropriate for you and your family, and then working on your bedtime routine right away. Mm -hmm. Great. So it seems like maybe even having an efficient schedule that you start from the get-go, from the morning on through the day will help alleviate some of the pressure after school Absolutely. and for bedtime. Organization, calendars, scheduling blocks of time when you might do this or do that or when you do your homework or when you do activities and that everyone's on the same page is always helpful, not just for sleep, but for good organization skills anyway. Great. We've been talking a lot about getting the screens out of bedtime, which I understand, but how as pediatricians can we counsel uh, teenagers about how technology might impact their sleep and why they shouldn't be using the screens before bedtime because a lot of them think that this is a quiet activity and that it's not a problem or they say that they need the TV to fall asleep and they don't understand when I say that that's not actually true. So how do you explain that to teens and parents? So the screens that we have today look great. They're beautiful. They're fancy, high-quality screens, and they make the picture look really nice. And part of the way that they do that is a lot of different light and technology. 
one of the light that gets emitted from screens, fancy screens, actually all screens except for a Kindle e-reader, sort of that mm. basic e-reader, is uh, blue light. Mm-hmm. And when I often describe this to kids and their families, I say, it's not the type of color that, it's not a blue color that emits, but it's the wavelength that goes into your eyeballs and goes into your brain, and I call it the melatonin zapper. Mm-hmm. So all people have, their brain produces melatonin. It gets produced when it's dark outside or when the light's going down at a certain time of the day, and that melatonin tells our body it's time to go to bed. And so when we introduce a screen and that blue light goes into our eyes, it sort of takes our natural melatonin and just zaps it. Mm. And many of us can overcome it, And but if you've ever had that moment where you're sitting in front of a screen and you're staring at the TV and you're in that zombie zone where you're not quite awake and you're staring at it and you want to go to sleep but you really can't, that's the blue light effect. And I don't think I've ever had somebody who hasn't said, I've definitely had that experience. Mm-hmm. So I try and work with that feeling and saying, we're doing that on a continual basis and that's not good for our brains because then they don't know when to naturally produce melatonin and say it's time to go to bed versus, mm-hmm. oh, I'm going to get to stay up and watch some TV more and we get confused. Great. I love having a scientific reason <laughs> to give to them um, and not just making it sound like we hate technology because right. there's a time and a place, but that's a great way to know about the melatonin zapper mm-hmm. um, to explain it to them. So we've been talking a lot about uh, behavioral strategies about sleep and sleep hygiene, but when as pediatricians should we have some red flags go off that there could be other etiologies for insufficient sleep, things like uh, sleep apnea or periodic limb movement disorders and narcolepsy. So when, do, when kind of should we say this is a little bit more than just poor sleep hygiene? So in the sleep center at CHOP, and I'm sure sleep clinics around the country, when they ask patients about their sleep, and they go into not just the quality and the quantity, but they get really detailed into what's going on. And if there are things like pauses in breathing, um, or lips turning blue in the middle of the night, or bodies getting stuck in a certain position, or having to rhythmically kick your legs while you're falling asleep, or any pain in your body when you're falling asleep, those would be signs in which it's not a behavioral component to sleep, but there's actually might be something medical going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where we're talking about periodic limb movement disorder, restless leg syndrome, sleep apnea. Um, when we're talking about narcolepsy, that's a little bit different. That's usually more involved, but all kids might say that teenagers might say that they're tired, but if they can actually fall asleep within you know, minutes of putting their head down at any time of day, then you're looking at something different. Mm-hmm. If you have a kid that, or an adolescent that is always chronically tired, that falls asleep in a moving vehicle or on the bus or the train every time they get into a car um, or some sort of moving vehicle, that would be something that's sort of above the average concern that we have of just insufficient sleep. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Those are good to know. How can the CHOP Sleep Center Um, who you just mentioned, help patients and families, and what do they offer that maybe um, we can't do in our general primary care pediatrics office? So the Sleep Center here is a wonderful resource, not just for behavioral components of sleep, but it's a full integrated team that has pulmonologists. Um, It has, uh, they have different sleep study, sleep centers throughout some of the care network sites um, where they can do sleep studies. They can use um, actigraphy to look at the quality of the sleep throughout the night. They can also do um, studies that look that, that evaluate for not just sleep apnea, but also for um, narcolepsy as well. And then they'll work as a team with the physicians and the psychologists and the respiratory therapists and the nursing staff that's there in order to come up with a plan 
to how to get your child and then hopefully the whole family sleeping better because we know it's a family issue. Mm -hmm. It's not just a kid-related issue. So, for example, if we're talking about sleep apnea, there's a whole team dedicated to helping start using a CPAP and how to get a child used to wearing a, a CPAP machine at night and how to you get the family involved with providing incentives for using that and then they check in on them regularly with their medical care and their psychological care and they do a lot of follow-up. So um, beyond what might be addressable in the bedtime routine and cleaning up sleep hygiene here in primary care, the sleep centers are to really support families that need that next step of intervention Mm -hmm. beyond that. Right, great. It's always amazing the resources that we have um, here at CHOP and we're thankful to have them and the sleep center is definitely one of those. What lifestyle modifications um, can we talk about at our well care visits uh, that might help promote healthy sleep? Should we be talking about um, getting more exercise or avoiding caffeine? Are there other things that I'm not thinking of that can help um, just be a good healthy habit that would promote healthy sleep habits as well? Some of those are definite. So caffeine consumption is a big one. We start learning probably in our teenage years that we can have coffee in the morning or a soda in the afternoon, mm-hmm. or a Red Bull or something that's a caffeine or energy drink. And those can be really harmful as well. So talking about limiting those after a certain time of day, um, the, the conversations about you know all the things that teenagers think go on at night or the things that they need to be a part of, that they're still going to be there during the next day. So learning that if they choose sleep, they can be better at school. They can be more alert and attentive. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also just trying to move any of that high energy stuff earlier in the, the afternoon routine can be really helpful. Great. And when we refer to the CHOP Sleep Center, I know that from Epic, at least, there are two separate ways I can refer for the sleep center versus the sleep lab. And one is for... Um, a overnight sleep study, but then I can also refer just to see the team that you mentioned, mm-hmm. right? So um, maybe if someone already had a sleep study or I'm not worried particularly about sleep apnea, but I want more of the behavioral interventions um, and the team approach, uh, that's an option. Is that right? That Absolutely. I can kind of do it either way. It, you don't have to get a sleep study um, necessarily. Right. I think sleep studies are often maybe a, a first line of defense thinking, well, let's just look at your, the quality of your sleep in a sleep study. But if, if it's more behavioral and we're not concerned about breathing issues or other issues like that, a sleep study may not tell you that much. You know, you're put into mm-hmm. an artificial lab, you've got leads connected to mm-hmm. your body, um, it doesn't feel like your bed, and so you're not necessarily getting a, a really good night of sleep on its own for us to say, ah, here's where you wake up and here's here was your bedtime routine where it failed. That stuff is done in a separate visit, a separate conversation with the behavioral team to assess what that looks like at home on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. What the sleep study will do will really show if there's any medical issue on, going on, if there's pauses in breathing, if there's long periods of time, that there's any you know acti- seizure activity, things that are going on um, that way. A sleep study won't help with any of the behavioral parts. Mm-hmm. But yes, you can absolutely see the sleep team at CHOP for behavioral issues that don't have to deal with a, a sleep study that's necessary. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming and talking to us about sleep today. It was very informative. I know that I'm going to get more sleep tonight than I did <laughs> last night because I definitely need it, even though I'm not a teenager. But you, uh, yeah, you made me feel better about counseling uh, my parents and teenagers in the office about some strategies that they can take and, and also the science behind it, like I said, which I think is so important when we're talking to teenagers who are 
um, turning towards adulthood and have lots of questions and want information, it's always great to feel armed to give that to them. So thanks for sharing with us today. Thanks for having me. I also want to give a little plug to the uh, new Pediatric Sleep Council website. It's babysleep.com. It's a bunch of well-known pediatric sleep researchers, both at CHOP and around the world, that have come together and created a fantastic website that has videos and books and tutorials all about from birth to, you know, adolescence, when to use a pacifier, when not, when, you know, how to do a bedtime routine. It's a really great resource. I use it all the time. So babysleep.com. Babysleep.com. Thank you. We learned something new at the very (laughs) end. Thanks for sneaking that in. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcasts for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.